This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, folks. Thanks for tuning in to AOA. We're happy to be a part of you starting off your work week here on this July 11th. A lot is developing in the world of agriculture right now. We're continuing to see that market volatility move prices in the commodity space. As of right now, we've got corn up 13 cents. We've got soybeans up 14 cents. And we've got the wheat market hanging in there. Excuse me, it has turned around. We are down 11, 10 to 11 in the wheat market today. A lot of strength in the dollar. We're going to talk with Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing here in just a moment about what's developing in the commodity trade. And in segment two, we're going to check in with our friend John Baranek of DTN Weather. Obviously, weather is a part of moving those markets this week. And John will fill us in on what to expect in the week ahead. And in segment three, we're going to talk with Dalton Henry. He's the vice president of policy at U.S. Wheat Associates. And there continues to be global focus on the wheat trade. Dalton's going to bring us up to speed on what has changed in the international community with regard to wheat. So without further ado, folks, let's dive into it. Let's get Dwayne Bussey on the phone here. Dwayne, before we jump into the markets, how are crops looking up there in the northeast corner of South Dakota? Actually, pretty darn good. Traveled through South Dakota this weekend, and uh, the further south you go, a nice, consistent corn crop and beans that are further along. Up in northeast South Dakota, of course, we plant a little later. We had that cold, wet spring. Uh, So really, this this warmer forecast is kind of what we need to get caught up. Um, we had rains last week, so crop condition ratings for the Dakotas will actually probably increase this afternoon. All right, we'll get that report out at 3 p.m. Central Time. Dwayne, you mentioned that heat that was rolled into the forecast over the weekend. I'm guessing that's a big part of why we're seeing some green on the grains today? It sure is, yeah. <laughs> Sunday afternoon forecast, 6 to 10 and 8 to 14 both show hot and dry in the Midwest, and pretty much this time of year, that's all you need to get a green on the screen, like you said. But overnight then, uh, some green on the radar screen as some showers rolled through Iowa, kind of got the market off the highs here. And it, as we open up the day session here at 830, it kind of seems like the funds just aren't really in the, the mood to buy a, a two-week hot-dry forecast. Um, if you watch a commitment of traders report, they're following their kind of normal seasonal tendency to get out of long positions here as the crop is developing and looking like trend line yields. You know, it, it depends if you hit the rain or not. You got really good crops in Iowa, pretty good crops in Illinois, and pretty decent crops in Minnesota. Well, those are three real key states, Mike, right? They certainly are, Dwayne. I mean, that's key. And as you mentioned, the fact that these large scale investors, the hedge funds, the non-commercials, they're getting out of the trade right now. Is a function of that the strength we're seeing in the dollar? I noticed it's up another full percentage point today. That's that's a huge point today is that the dollar's up sharply and yeah, energy's down, stock market down. And I, I think we go back to the recession talk and that's the concern of why do we want to be long here in the grains if we are headed into recession. Now, last week, of course, we bounced off the lows due to a huge China stimulus package and everyone felt like, oh, we're done now. And I kind of had to giggle at that. I, I, I mean, it was a huge stimulus package, but I don't see how one movement like that can stop a recession. And so it feels like today it's back more to the recession talk. And even though our economy isn't stellar, everyone's looking at that dollar as a safe haven for their investments. And all that does is really hurt our export market, right? Especially the wheat market. That's why wheat's taken it the the toughest today. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that. I saw wheat is really kind of the only exception down 10 on the day, but that's what it is. It's that global trade, Dwayne, that's concerned about that strength of the dollar. Yep, exactly. You know, yes, global wheat supplies will be down, but I think it will be the last place they come to buy it from it with a higher U.S. dollar, right? And that's the problem. The Russia-Ukraine story is still out there. And, and with Ukraine farmers only getting $2 a bushel for wheat and just a little over a dollar for corn, I don't know if they're going to plant much this fall, period. So there's a bullish story, but that's, man, that could be a couple of months away yet. Right now, the funds just want out of longs. It's pretty much that simple. 
Well, Dwayne, tomorrow on a Tuesday, kind of a rarity, we're getting the World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates from USDA. Of course, now we're rolling in that data from the end of the month of June. Do you anticipate any big changes coming on that report tomorrow? No, I, I wouldn't say any major surprises. You know, we saw the acreage report, so we will just slip those acreage numbers into the S&D tables now. And that would make you think that we're going to have a really low um, ending stock for new crop soybeans, you know, around 200, and that's what the trade's expecting. But I don't think USDA quite wants to print a number like that. I'm afraid they're going to pull off the demand ledger for probably both corn and beans, thinking that we will have a recession coming in 2022 three into 2022 and and maybe curve demand. So I'm kind of looking for a bit of a bearish report tomorrow versus the trade expectations. Dwayne, you've mentioned a couple times the fear of this recession, leaving traders not wanting to go home holding longs in the grain markets. But if I think back to 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. 2011, very serious recession for the economy and grains performed well, could we see that split happen again this year? It, it could a little bit. I think you almost already saw it, you know, on the inflation run up, we had money flowing into commodities thinking, well, inflation, commodities will go higher. And now as you head towards a recession, I think funds just want their money for now. And then they'll look to reinvest, you know, oddly enough, it might be the cattle market where they start to stick some of their money, which is completely opposite. It should go down into a recession, but that never really rallied a lot on the inflation talk. So maybe oddly enough, that's the one they stick money into. I think they need to like hit the reset button here, go flat, and then we hear the Ukraine story and we get back to, wow, global supplies are actually pretty tight and hard to get out of Ukraine, and then maybe our commodities become a buy again, just to your point, like, you know, during a recession, maybe commodities can actually do decent. Well, and I'm glad you brought up the cattle market. You're right. We did not see that huge flow of money into it when everybody was worried about inflation. But Dwayne, we haven't seen a huge exodus of dollars out of it over this past week. Does that strength give you some hope for the future of uh, cattle prices? It really does. I, I kind of like this August cattle board right here around that 134 level. That hot, dry forecast, uh, the heat is centered right around feedlot country in the Midwest. Uh, so I think we actually need to build what's called a, a weather premium in the cattle market. Our weights are already very low. Uh, so obviously feedlots are very current. Well, when you get that hot of a forecast, it's really hard to put weight on cattle. They just try to maintain themselves. And packers, I think, are a little short-bought, and they need more choice cattle. But that takes heavier weights, and no one wants to feed them out when it's 100 degrees and corn $7. So so I, I think it's going to be tough to, to get the weight on. And with less weight means less production, and not to mention the whole herd reduction we've been talking about for really about a year. So I think we have some upside potential here. Upside potential in cattle. Dwayne, real quick, before we let you go, lean hogs still moving higher. Does that trend continue this week? Well, it seems like the global market has also kind of caught fire, and that kind of stems back to Germany having some ASF problems again, and that makes everyone think, oh, maybe supplies will be down, and maybe China's going to have to come buy from us. Uh, might be tough as, as China starts to lock down again from some more COVID restrictions, but a nice rally so far. Uh, let's just see if we can just hold that. All right, see if we can hold what we've got, folks. We've been talking to Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing in Britain, South Dakota. Dwayne, thanks so much for joining us today, especially on your birthday. (laughs) Thanks, Mike. Happy birthday, Dwayne. And folks, stick around. John Baranek of DTN Weather will be joining us here in just a minute. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. We gather together in communities across the nation to remember and honor, to celebrate and support, to light the night. Join us as we lift our lanterns high in order to move toward a world free of blood cancers. Join us as we light the night for a loved one. Join us. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Our mission is to cure leukemia, lymphoma, Hodgkin's disease, and myeloma. Our aim is to improve the quality of life of patients and their families. Join us. We are LLS, and when we walk, cancer runs. Join your community and help bring light to the darkness of cancer. Join us as we light the night. 
Find your local event at lightthenight.org. That's lightthenight.org. The American Coalition for Ethanol is hosting its 35th annual conference in Omaha, Nebraska, Wednesday, August 10th through Friday, August 12th. This must-attend event for industry leadership features timely updates on ethanol public policy, market development, board of director training, and more. This event combines the detail of high-level training courses with all the fun of a family reunion. For event details, visit ethanol.org. That's ethanol.org. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner too through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. You're listening to AOA agriculture of america this is mike pearson and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world keeping america's farmers and ranchers informed on aoa now back to mike pearson well folks thanks for making aoa a part of your day here on this monday we just talked to Dwayne Bussey about what is going on in the markets, and he mentioned one of the factors that traders are keeping a very close eye on as we get into the month of July is weather. And we've got some storms rolling across the Corn Belt this morning. Joining me to break down weather for the week ahead is Mr. John Baranek of DTN Weather. John, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Good to, always good to be with you, Mike. You know, let's start with where we sit today, John. We do have a couple pockets of thunderstorms and rain moving across the Corn Belt. Tell us, where do you see it going here for the rest of the day? Yeah, we do. We have a little cold front moving across uh, the Corn Belt here. Uh, we had some stronger showers and thunderstorms across Iowa this morning. weakened quite a bit as they gotten into Illinois, but they're still going on. And uh, we still have some showers trailing back across Iowa into northeast Nebraska. But you're going through Minnesota as well, all part of that uh, little cold front moving through. John, that northwest corner of Iowa, northeast Nebraska, southeast South Dakota, they have been very, very dry. Did this event bring any moisture their way? It got a little bit. Um, you know, some areas got some where others didn't. Uh, the, the stronger bits that went through Iowa earlier today kind of didn't really happen until they, they, they kind of crossed I-35. So some of those drier sections did get a little bit, but uh, not nearly enough of the, what they need from the deficits they've been incurring lately. Gotcha. John, let's look out a little bit bigger picture. Dwayne Bussey mentioned that the 8 to 10 day or the 8 to 14 day forecast came out yesterday, looked a little toasty. Is that your expectation for the next two weeks? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, we're getting a little bit of a break here in the Corn Belt this week. This cold front that's moving through is going to bring down temperatures a little bit. We'll be sitting kind of at normal though, so it's not anything really chilly. Uh, but uh, as we get kind of the last couple of days of the week and going into the weekend especially we'll see that heat kind of building in into the plains and then uh, working its way into the midwest as well and really next week looks like it's going to be uh pretty hot for a good ch chunk of the country we've got a ridge of high pressure out in the west that'll be spreading its way eastward really just kind of anchoring itself over the entire u.s next week uh there's going to be a little bit of a of a of a weakness in it in the southeast where temperatures won't be that great and they'll have some showers down there 
And uh, a couple of pieces of energy are going to go through Canada, but it looks like uh, for the most part here, the entire country here in you know, the U.S. is going to be sitting in that kind of the hotter, drier section uh, of, the, of the forecast. Boy, John, that's not what a lot of growers want to hear is this corn is nearing pollination with a heat ridge like that, with a with a high pressure zone like that. I'm assuming that winds are a little less powerful. Is that what you would expect to see? For the most part, you know, with uh, uh, the, the systems moving through Canada up towards the Dakotas, Minnesota might uh, you know, not be as um, as calm as some of the other portions of the country. But, yeah, I would expect the, the winds to be down quite a bit. Uh, for, for much of the country for next week, especially. Well, that is at least a, a silver lining, I suppose. So you're looking at a forecast with hot, dry weather. And John, you mentioned the showers coming across the south, potentially. Where do you see those developing or what regions should be keeping an eye out for rainfall? Yeah, so we had a front go through uh, late last week and through the weekend and kind of anchored itself right along the Gulf Coast and uh, into the kind of eastern uh, Carolinas as, as well. Uh, the cold front that's moving now through the Corn Belt will settle into that area uh, later this week, kind of Wednesday, Thursday time frame. But that's kind of more right in the heart of the southeast, right through Mississippi, uh, up through the Carolinas. Uh, and it's going to kind of hang out there all the way through the weekend. Uh, what's going to be interesting is if it can go a little bit further south, and we got that little break in the ridge there, we may pop up a, a tropical storm in the Gulf of Mexico here late this week. Um, most likely it would be a, a heavy rain producer. Uh, it's not going to get out over the water enough, I don't think, to become any sort of hurricane or strong wind producer or, or producing any sort of tornadoes. But increasing the, the moisture uh, down there is definitely a, a big possibility here all the way through the weekend. John, that tropical storm there in the Gulf, where would you see that impacting the coastline? Is that going to be Texas, Louisiana, or more Florida up the East Coast? Yeah, it looks like the tail end of the front is going to be kind of towards the New Orleans area of Louisiana, so not western, but eastern Louisiana, and then points eastward. It looks like uh, like the, the hotbed of uh, potential development there. So if you were to kind of pick between Pensacola and uh, New Orleans, that looks like the kind of area we're watching right now. All right. Keep an eye on that there in the southeast. And John, I want to turn our focus out to the West Coast. Saw some reports this past week that California has removed water rights from some additional farmers. I believe now 10% of water rights holders in California won't have access to that water. Is there any relief in sight for some long-term alleviation to their drought in the southwest? Gee, California really doesn't get rainfall until we uh, start getting into November and December uh, for, for refilling things. So, um, you know, they do get a little bit um, towards the Colorado Riverside in uh, southeast uh, uh, California there for, for the monsoon showers that pop up every so often. Um, but a lot of that's going on right now over the Four Corners region. So they're missing out on all of that as well. So really, I don't see any sort of significant relief for, for California um, uh, until we get into the late fall. Boy, John, does that extend all the way through the Colorado River Basin? That is such a crucial supply of drinking water for that southwest and irrigation water for agriculture. Do you see any relief coming up through the Rockies potentially later on this summer? Yeah, the good news is that is the um, the monsoon has already been quite active. Uh, and we've seen a little bit of drought reduction already in the Four Corners area, which is um, really where the, uh, the Colorado River starts there. And, um, you know, it's, it's not perfect <laughs> as this kind of showers move through the southwest, never are. Um, but we're, we've seen better coverage of, of rainfall out there, and it looks to be the case through, uh, through this, the rest of the summer as well. So at least there's some hope um, that, you know, uh, we're, we're building a, a little bit of a stream flow through the Colorado River. Um, but, you know, they're so far behind. It's just it's really hard to put any sort of dent in that until we get kind of, you know, months and months and months of additional above normal precipitation to start refilling some of that um, you know especially as you get uh, down towards lake mead and some of those areas that we've uh, kind of seen go way below normal and, and, and start to talk about you know starting to become dead pools down there um, you know we've, we've got a long way to go to refill them back up to normal
Yeah, need lots and lots of above average rainfall. John, you mentioned that rainfall falling in the Four Corners area, looking a little bit to the farther east in that Southern Plains region, Texas, Oklahoma panhandles. The drought appears to continue to be worsening. Do you see any of these Four corner storms moving far enough east to help out the panhandles? No, every so often they do. And especially when some of these fronts come down uh, through the Central Plains, uh, they kind of I don't know, kind of leak a little bit of a shower activity out of the Four Corners area uh, into those areas. But, uh, you know, we've got one coming through this week that'll probably do that, uh, either Tuesday or Wednesday. Uh, we might have another one over the weekend that'll, that could do that. But, you know, with that ridge really kind of anchoring itself over the middle of the country next week, uh, we're not going to see that really good potential for, for bringing some showers out into those areas. So, uh, if you don't get hit this week with it, it looks like a, a good, dry, hot week next week. All right. Good, dry, hot week. John, speaking of dry, I've got the drought monitor pulled up, so I'm focusing in on some of the issues that are appearing on that monitor. And one that I've been watching, have not spent a lot of time on, but I'm curious about is the drought in central Montana. It continues to exacerbate. It looks like it's centered right there around that cut bank area. What's happening there in Montana? Are they just in a bad spot and they just keep missing the systems pretty much um you know and honestly they had some pretty decent precipitation there but the the deficits have been just so uh drastic that you know even when they get some decent rain through there it's not really putting a dent in the drought uh so that they need they need um, much more uh to move through over the next few months um for 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 them to to hopefully get out of that before uh before the fall really kill uh kicks in uh, but we're not really seeing that potential too much. A lot of the activity now with the ridge moving out through the plains, a lot of that's going through Canada. And, you know, it just produces some isolated showers here and there uh, for that part of even Montana. Yes. All right, John, looking around the world, of course, agriculture matters to the weather globally or weather matters to agriculture globally. Are there any places you're keeping an eye on because there are some things developing that could impact their crops? Yeah, um, really, right now, I'm looking at Argentina. We're looking at the wheat crop down there. Um, really kind of going off of what happened during the corn and soybean season, um, where it has been just abnormally dry down there, has continued through uh, their winter now. Um, and uh, their winter wheat situation uh, is not very good. Uh, it's been very cold as well, and that's not helped out with establishment down there. Um, and uh, other parts of Europe have also been dealing with hot and dry conditions. So it's been kind of uh, hard to deal with uh, in other parts of the world as well. Yes, it's tough to find a garden spot when you look around the world. John Baranek of DTN Weather, thanks so much for joining us here today. Always great to talk to you, Mike. Thanks for having me on. You bet. And folks, stick around. Dalton Henry, Vice President of Policy at the Wheat Associates, will be joining us after this. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. We here at the American Ag Network enjoy and celebrate our freedom and independence, and we want you to safely enjoy and celebrate your freedom and independence with us. Did you know that July 4th was not deemed a federal holiday until 1870? That's nearly 100 years after the nation was founded. The Declaration of Independence was written on a laptop. Okay, not a modern laptop, but Thomas Jefferson did draft the Declaration of Independence on a writing desk that could fit onto one's lap. That device was referred to as a laptop. An old adage among corn farmers is knee-high by the 4th of July, meaning that if one's corn stalks were at least as high as an adult's knees by Independence Day, they could expect a good harvest. And corn stalks can actually grow as tall as 13 feet high. And sweet corn, that variety that most Americans will be grilling and boiling for cookouts, accounts for just 1% of all corn grown in the United States. Please celebrate our independence safely and responsibly this July with us at the American Ag Network. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risfet with this market update. USDA will be updating its monthly WASDE supply and demand tables tomorrow, providing a fresh fundamental focus on the markets, which may already be focused on the shift toward hot, drier weather for pollination and pod set. 
The biggest potential for surprise in that report will be the U.S. wheat production estimate in either direction, as this report will contain USDA's first production estimate based on field surveys for the Northern Plains spring wheat crop. Next 30 days will be critical for that crop's development as well as the corn and soybean crops. Otherwise, a lot of folks are going to be watching how the USDA massages a $150 million plus bushel loss due to lower acreage into the U.S. soybean balance sheet. We could possibly see a modest increase in Brazil corn and soybean production estimates, while we could also see adjustments to black seed production and export estimates that impact the balance sheet. Overall, though, the big changes should wait until USDA issues its August 12th WASD report. Keep in mind that the market's response to both changing Midwest weather and to tomorrow's USD report will be within the context of what's happening in the outside markets amid China COVID and U.S. inflation data. One thing we do know is to be prepared for the unexpected. Let's get a look at some of those commodity numbers. July corn up 14 and three quarters at 793. July beans up 12 and three quarters at 1643. Bean meal July up 590 a ton at 484.30. Bean oil July up 93 at 65 even. Wheat Chicago July down 11 and three quarters at 867 and a half. Kansas City July up five and three quarters at 945. And that September Minneapolis wheat that is up three at 988 and three quarters. Live cattle August up 32 at 134.27. Feeders August down 125 at 174.47. And the July lean hogs they are up 50 cents at 113.35. Well the Dow right now is down almost 150 points. The dollar is sitting at 107.8 and crude oil is trading down just over two bucks at just under $103 a barrel. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe... Someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. information farmers and ranchers need to know aoa now back to mike pearson thanks for tuning in to aoa today ladies and gentlemen you know since russia's invasion of ukraine global attention really has been focused on wheat supplies and the disruptions to the global trading order and that has provided lots of topics for discussion here at the end of the month of june at the wto ministerial meetings uh joining us today to talk about those meetings is u.s wheat associate vice president of policy dalton henry and dalton thank you so much for joining us here today Thanks for having me on. Let's talk about this World Trade Organization ministerial meeting that happened at the end of June. Dalton, were there ag issues under discussion at the meeting? There were, Mike. And, you know, this is a, it's a, the ministerial meetings are always kind of unique in that uh, it is a big meeting. It only occurs every two years where you actually get the decision makers, elected or appointed political leaders together from the more than 160 country members of the WTO. But yet, unless you work in international trade policy, lots of times that's a a meeting that can come and go without really paying a lot of attention or without it garnering a lot of headlines. Yeah, I mean, that's the truth of the matter. And so, Dalton, I think the question I hear from growers is, if these meetings can happen and we don't know about it, do they matter? I think that's a really relevant question. And when we go back and we look at the history of the, the WTO, uh, and, and really it goes back to the mid-1990s and that initial agreement uh, that was so incredibly valuable for U.S. agriculture because it converted the old system of regulating trade to a system based largely on tariffs. And tariffs are very predictable 
Uh, you know exactly what it's going to be, and prices can adjust around the world. So they do still inhibit trade, but it, it's a response that global trade can manage for the most part. And I think there was always this, I don't think, it, there was always this effort that there was going to be that you know the 95-96 agreement or era agreement was going to be followed by successor agreements that then once we converted everything to tariffs, then we were going to have these Doha round negotiations, and folks would, would remember those from the mid-2000s, where we're then going to agree to reduce those tariffs over time. And that got into a lot of discussions because part of, in, in American agriculture, because part of the what countries are going to get in exchange for reducing tariffs is that uh, other countries, especially agricultural producers, were going to limit, further limit domestic support or subsidies provided uh, to agricultural producers or to farmers and ranchers, or they were going to change the way they were provided so that they were less trade distorting. And it was always this big trade-off of how much could you give up in support and how much could you get in exchange in market access. Uh, and it was kind of this, we want trade, not aid discussion in, in U.S. agriculture. And really, the Doha round has completely fallen apart. And so I think that after that happened, it became really easy for American agriculture to, to maybe pay a little bit less attention to the day-to-day -day work of the WTO. Now, one of the aspects that the WTO is crucial in, in formatting conversations about are SPS issues. And Dalton, these are sanitary and phytosanitary trade barriers, trade restrictions. Can you tell our audience what is an example of an SPS issue? So it, it's, a, it's a good question. And it has become, they have become the new frontier in trade policy and the barriers that we work on. And so typically we think about it as anything that impacts or has the potential to impact plant, animal, or human health. And so you see restrictions on things like African swine fever is a key example of an SPS restriction. Or in the U.S. wheat industry, you, you would see a number of countries place restrictions on the presence of specific weed seeds, say something like Canadian thistle, uh, and limits to or complete bans on the presence of those weed seeds in a, in a shipment of U.S. wheat. And so these SPS provisions, you mentioned the next frontier in international trade. What topics with regard to SPS were under discussion at this meeting here in June? So this was uh, actually one of the exciting things that came out of this ministerial was an agreement not to reopen the original text of the SPS agreement, which governs things like notification to other members and discussion and kind of lays out an outline of restrictions and rules on how a country can choose to implement SPS rules. Uh, but what this one, what this ministerial really focused on is saying these are becoming a bigger deal and we need a specific work program. So essentially a work program is something that typically takes place between two WTO ministerials. So over the next 18 to 24 months, we need a work program to identify why these barriers are growing so much and what are some best practices that we can advise for countries when they consider putting those in place? You know, and some of those answers are probably easier than others. On, on the transparency standpoint, just a standard notice and comment period guidelines. You know, we see and have seen a number of countries in the last three years ban specific plant protection products like pesticides and herbicides uh, or implement uh, maximum residue level, MRL, kind of get into an acronym soup here pretty soon, uh, but that you know, governs the maximum residue of a chemical that can be found in a wheat shipment. And so when we think about fungicides or stored grain insecticides that are applied to a wheat crop to make sure that they stay weed-free and bug-free, uh, many countries have placed bans on some of those, several countries have placed bans on some of those products without any opportunity for meaningful comment at all and for us to really stand up and say, hey, this is going to create an issue because that's part of how we, those products are part of how we as the U.S. deliver clean, reliable, and safe wheat supplies around the world. And so we're excited to see the additional focus on those measures. Absolutely. Though it does, sounds like it will take some time. WTO is not a fast-moving organization. 18 to 24 months was the timeline that they had given for that uh, process? 
That is, and that's largely based on the time between the two ministerial meetings. And so I think that when you know, you'll probably have some deliverables that are recommended and identified before that. And I, my guess would be is that there are probably going to be some of those that we come into the next ministerial and the folks that have been working on that work program say, we're not going to have a perfect answer here, so we're going to elevate that. And we want the trade ministers or essentially the decision makers, their bosses, to talk about specific pieces around that. But it's, yeah, I think the, right. the other piece that's really notable on this is even the European Union joined in supporting this uh, this SPS work program. And so when we think about where a lot of those challenges on the use of herbicides and pesticides have come as of late, it's oftentimes been from the European Union. And to see them at the table and recognizing that we do need some harmonization there is a, a really significant marker uh, in our hopes that this is gonna, going to produce meaningful outcomes. All right, maybe get some more clarity on that issue. Now, Dalton, there has also been a number of U.S. ag industry folks who are pushing for reform at the WTO level. What, are, what would they like to see reformed? So we are a, a members of a kind of informal coalition of U.S. ag groups that, that are f very focused on reform. I think, you know, a couple of the, the big pieces for us oftentimes revolve around dispute settlement. I think if, if we look at the likelihood of receiving new market access, you know, reviving the Doha era negotiations about new market access for U.S. producers, those odds don't seem very good. And so in the meantime, what we've really looked at the WTO as being is an enforcement tool. And we said, look, 30 years ago, we agreed on a set of rules, and yet we know there are many countries around the world that are not abiding by those. The tool to force compliance is dispute settlement. And we've seen it work very well. Uh, you, here in the last five years with two cases against China, it provides us with a perfect example of how dispute settlement can work really well. That was a case on their import rules around quotas and uh, how those quotas were administered. And after that ruling and after China implemented the new rules, China went from averaging less than 3 million tons of wheat on an annual basis to averaging 9.6 million tons here for the last two years. And so it can have really meaningful impacts for U.S. growers. But at the same time, we also sued China uh, at the WTO over their domestic subsidies because they run a huge domestic support program that subsidizes the production of wheat in China. A lot of folks don't realize that China is the world's largest producer of wheat. Uh, they're also one of the world's, they are the world's largest consumer, so we would very much like access to that market in a bigger way. Uh, that case is actually still in the compliance phase, and here we are more than five years later, and we still haven't reached the finish line. So when we think about reform at the WTO, it's really oftentimes about dispute settlement. How can we get enforcement of rules, and how can we get that enforcement faster? Does it sound like the reform agenda might have gained some ground with the WTO? I think when we go back to President Trump, really kind of bringing this discussion to a head, it actually started under President Obama where the U.S. began refusing to nominate justices, or not justices, but uh, panelists, uh, to hear dispute settlement cases. And the WTO works on the basis of consensus. So every country has the ability to stand on their own and say, I object and something can't happen. Which it is out of form for the U.S. to take that hard of a stance. But when President Trump actually took that so far that the appellate body could no longer meet because they had no members, other countries finally took notice. And I think it took a year or two before the rest of the world realized this isn't just a President Trump thing. It's a all countries thing or all U.S. Uh, leaders thing. So I, that's a big piece of progress in and of itself. That is indeed. Our thanks to Dalton Henry, the Vice President of Policy at the U.S. Wheat Associates. Dalton, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mike. You can see their work at uswheat.org. And stick around. We'll have more AOA when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad? 
Your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. And in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. It's been said that when someone you love has Parkinson's, you have Parkinson's. The Parkinson's Foundation knows that the disease doesn't just affect the diagnosed. It affects everyone who supports and helps care for them. If you or someone you know is living with Parkinson's, a neurological disease that affects movement, we understand that it can be difficult to know where to find help. If you have questions, the Parkinson's Foundation has answers. Answers for everyone in the fight. We can help you understand the disease. Help you find expert care and local support give you tips for living a better life, and share the latest research. Find your answers and join us in the fight against Parkinson's. To learn more, please go to parkinson.org. Or call 1-800-473-4636. That's 1-800-473-4636. The Parkinson's Foundation. Better Better lives together. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business with than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with an SPF of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. 
This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. Earlier in the show, when we were talking with John Baranek, I mentioned the hearing that took place out in California this past week. Representative Jim Costa, excuse me, a Democrat from California. He's a senior member of the House Ag Committee. And as we have seen other members of the House and Senate Ag Committees do over the past several months, they get back in their home district and they have a town hall. They want to hear the, the concerns from their constituencies. And so he he held his in his district, which is in the Central Valley of California. And, uh, you know, I was talking earlier about the drought monitor folks that Central Valley in California right now is in D3, the extreme drought category with D4 exceptional drought wrapping around the southern edge. This is a crucial crop production region. A lot of high value specialty agricultural crops are grown in that Central Valley of California. And this drought is driving down production. Mark McKean, who's a farmer from Fresno County, he said reductions of both state and federal water had cut out water allocations anywhere from 10% down to all the way down to 0%. He said, quote, productive farmland is being fallowed. We are fallowing on our own farm. The University of California at Merced looked at the 2021 drought. Remember, this is a, a multi-year drought that has been gripping that California state. And Last year, they estimated just shy of 400,000 acres of crops were fallowed due to lack of water. That 400,000 acres of fallow uh, ag ground cost the state $1.1 billion in lost agricultural revenue. And Dan Arotaberry was a farmer who spoke at uh, Rep Costa's hearing, and he said this year there is talk about potentially 1 million acres being fallowed. Folks, we might not be in California. We might be across the Corn Belt. Maybe we're in the Southern Plains. Maybe we're in the Northern Plains. But the rules and the discussions that govern water coming out of California, Nevada, Arizona over the next few years are going to have a national impact. We are going to see trends and uh, ideas put forward in those states to grapple with this drought potentially be utilized by places across the country should drought spring up in other places as time goes by. So I do encourage all of you to be plugged in to what is developing out there in California. This interaction between urban consumers in cities and rural water users on farms is going to intensify. And I would not be surprised if we see some policy shifts with regard to water that could come at the federal level. So we will continue to watch what is developing there. Uh, I've asked our friends from the Kansas City, or excuse me, from the California Farm Bureau to, uh, to drop by, give us an update as to how growers are grappling with these challenges across that state. We've got some other news that has impacted agriculture, notably a ruling on dicamba. Last Thursday, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit issued a decision holding Monsanto Bayer and BASF responsible for damage to a Missouri peach orchard. Bill Bader is a farmer down in Missouri, and back in 2017, he argued that dicamba drift had damaged large sections of his peach orchard, and he took uh, Monsanto to court in 2020, sued them, and a jury awarded him $265 million, saying that uh, dicamba was indeed the culprit for the damage at his farm. Later, uh, that award was reduced to $75 million, and with the Eighth Circuit, uh, excuse me, with the U.S. Court of Appeals on the Eighth Circuit upholding that decision. Um, and now, of course, there can be an appeal. It's expected that the next move to the upside would be to the Supreme Court case. Uh, we'll see if, if Monsanto Bayer does end up filing an appeal. But uh, for right now, Bayer says they, quote, stand strongly behind the safety and utility of its Extendamax herbicide, which is a valuable tool, especially right now when growers need access to a variety of safety and effective crop protection tools. So that's the update there on dicamba. And we've got some other news coming from the central part of the United States. Folks, if you listen to this show regularly, you know we talk a lot about the value of the dollar and the actions of the Federal Reserve. 
Well, the Kansas City Federal Reserve is looking to hire a new president. Esther George, who has been president and CEO for some time, has announced that she is going to retire in 2023. So in order to find a new president, the Kansas City Federal Reserve Bank is really throwing the doors wide open. And on Wednesday of this week, they are doing a community town hall via Zoom. It's at 515 on Wednesday. If you want to get in, have your voice heard on the selection of the next Kansas City Fed president, you can drop by and uh, join in on this public Zoom call. They're going to have a group of panelists, uh, Kansas City Fed Presidential Search Committee Chair Maria Grigoraby, Kansas City Fed Board Chair, Edmund Johnston, Tim Todd, who is an executive writer and historian at the Kansas City Fed, and he will serve as the moderator. So folks, if you want to have a voice in Federal Reserve policy, get that on your calendar. You can just Google Kansas City Fed Town Hall, and it will take you right to there. We did see some news over the weekend tail end of last week. It appears as though fighting in Ukraine is intensifying, and there are allegations that Russian troops are setting wheat fields on fire. Uh, there have been several pictures, satellite images showing fires raging across the eastern half of Ukraine. Of course, that is the Ukrainian breadbasket. This is where a lot of these crops are grown. Ukrainian wheat, just like wheat here in the U.S., is drying down as they prep for harvest. And the allegations are that Russia is launching incendiary devices into the fields of wheat in order to get these fires started. I have not seen if that has been confirmed one way or another, but that is the allegation currently uh, floating around on social media as those two countries battle continue. We've got one other piece of news that I wanted to make you folks aware of before we tune out for the day. And that is, well, I guess first and foremost, I wanted to make you aware that that value of the dollar is continuing to rise. And uh, yeah, yeah, we're still up over a percent today. And folks, tonight on RFD TV Farm Next, a new program hosted by my friend Max Armstrong takes a look at technology on the farm. Don't miss that tonight at 6, 7 p.m. Central Time on RFD TV, folks. Thanks for listening to AOA. We'll be back tomorrow working with our friends, the National Corn Growers Association from Washington, D.C. We'll see you then, ladies and gentlemen. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends, surprise parties, camps, birthdays. The same way you plan for the important moments, start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Get started at ready.gov plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Would you know what to do in a poison emergency? Would you know whom to call? Well, the answer is poison help. 1-800-222-1222. Poison help is a 24-7 government hotline staffed by poison experts. It's free to call and available in over 100 languages. Every second counts in a poison emergency. Don't waste it wondering who to call. Save poison help in your phone today. 1-800-222-1222.